In this session, we will cover the last part of Colossians chapter 2, which forms an important transition between what the Apostle Paul has said in the first part of this letter and what he will tell them in the upcoming section. So far, Paul has been quite complimentary to the Colossians, and he's commended the steadfastness of their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. He has also shared some amazing truths about the greatness of Christ, not only about what Christ has done for us, but truths about Christ's very nature and character. As the Creator, He is head over all things, and all the fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, and Best of all, the Lord Jesus Christ indwells every believer, providing the desire and power to live in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him and to bear fruit in every good work. The overall tone of his letter so far has been positive and encouraging, although twice Paul did give the Colossians a warning to watch out lest they are led astray from the truths of the faith. He begins this section by saying, Therefore, this means that what Paul has to say in today's passage is the logical follow-up to what he has just said in the previous passage. He stated in verses 9 and 10 that in Christ the fullness of deity dwells bodily and believers partake of that fullness because they are in him. Then Paul shared two pictures that help us to understand how we are identified with Christ so that we can live in him. First, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul mentioned circumcision, and this was circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When he speaks of putting off the body of flesh, He's talking about gaining mastery over our fleshly sinful nature. One commentator expressed it this way, Of course, by flesh here, we are to understand not merely the body, but the whole unregenerate personality, the entire unrenewed self that thinks and feels and wills and desires apart from God. We know that the rite of circumcision has no spiritual effect in itself, but it is symbolic of how Christ made it possible for us to put off the sins of the flesh, which we are prone to by nature. Then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said, We have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. He went on to say in verse 13 that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Like the rite of circumcision, the rite of baptism has no spiritual effect in itself, but it is symbolic of our death to sin and our resurrection to new life in Christ. It's a public testimony of our complete identification with Christ who makes it possible for us to put off the sins of the flesh and to put on righteous attitudes and behaviors since Christ himself is indwelling us and providing the power to overrule our fleshly desires. So here at the end of Colossians chapter 2, 
Paul will discuss three sets of things that are the wrong way to master our fleshly desires. Then, starting in Colossians chapter 3, he will describe the right way to do this, and he'll specifically identify what we are to put off, followed by what we are to put on as a result of living our life in Christ and for his glory. How do we know that verses 16 through 22 have to do with mastering our fleshly nature? The answer is in verse 23, the last verse in this section, where Paul summarizes what he says in verses 16 through 22. He identifies the three sets of things using these terms. First, he says self-made religion, and this would apply to Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. Next, he says, self-abasement, and this applies to Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And finally, severe treatment of the body, which applies to Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. His conclusion in verse 23 is that these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul's summary statement shows us the structure of this section with the topic being wrong ways to master the sin nature. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, this set of things involves man-made dietary rules and the observance of specific festival days on the calendar. Those who are promoting these traditions of men are implying that following this set of rules will result in greater spirituality. The verb is a present active imperative in the third person. And what Paul is forbidding here is the habit of someone who is continually passing judgment on believers in such matters. The Greek verb krino is probably the most general word for judging, and it carries the idea of considering and deciding. In Romans chapter 14 verse 5, it refers to making a simple distinction between one day and another. The set of things that are mentioned here, food, drink, festivals, new moon rituals, and the Sabbath, have often been identified as the Jewish dietary laws and national feast days, which God mandated in the Mosaic Law. Now, if they're meant to indicate Jewish traditions, then they're probably referring to the additional rules and regulations which the elders created as a so-called fence around the law. They consist of restrictions which go beyond what is revealed in God's word, and they can legitimately be described as self-made religion. This is what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees when he said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 13. Except for the mention of the Sabbath, however, 
These terms are general enough that they could also refer to some of the known rules and celebrations in the pagan mystery religions. So what Paul says could apply equally well to those dietary restrictions and festival days. His point is that believers are not to be held to a legalistic set of rules in order to measure their spirituality or to maintain their relationship with Christ. The reason is given in the very next verse. Colossians 2 verse 17 says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all of the things mentioned in verse 16 are mere shadows of the reality which believers have in Christ now, and more of which we will experience with Christ in the future. This is very similar to the wording of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, which says that the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things. The rules and regulations were a shadowy reminder that the reality is in Christ. Our life in Christ is not maintained or measured by behavioral checklists. It's a living, vital connection to our Lord and Savior through the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. One commentator expressed it this way, Why should one grasp for a shadow when he holds the substance in his hand? So, obeying dietary restrictions and observing ritual festival days will have no benefit for helping you to keep or enhance the true spirituality that you already have in Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, the second set of things is in the category which Paul called self-abasement. Like the phrase, act as your judge, in verse 16, here the verb is also a present active imperative in the third person. So Paul is forbidding the action of someone who is continually declaring believers ineligible for their rightful prize. The Greek verb katabrabuo means to decide against or to declare someone unworthy of his prize. This word is parallel to judging in verse 16, but if anything, it's an even stronger or more forceful expression. The Greek phrase that is translated delighting in self-abasement is somewhat difficult and obscure, but probably the best way to state it in this context would be having the appearance of great modesty or false humility. This kind of demeanor or approach was apparently one of the main characteristics of those who were promoting this set of behaviors. As one commentator expressed it, the persons referred to took pleasure in entering into the hidden and esoteric things of religion. They desired to appear to do this with a humble spirit. So the term self-abasement describes the approach or the demeanor of those who were advocating these things. The two main items included in this set are, first, the worship of angels, and second, ecstatic visions. The Greek word worship 
Threskeia applies to any external religious ritual or ceremonial observance. Specifically here, what's being advocated is a ceremony involving angels or possibly angelic mediators between God and man. Now, this is something that the Jews would never participate in, so it definitely eliminates them as the ones who were advocating this set of activities. There were, however, many other groups in Paul's day that did revere the so-called elemental spirits. Several different Greek mystery religions included doctrines and rituals having to do with appeasing the spirit world. Even today, astrology and occult practices abound. Part of the uncertainty about translating and interpreting this verse may be because Paul was using the exact wording that was common to some of the advocates of mysticism in his day. As one Bible commentator has said, the obscurities which make it one of the hardest passages in the entire book to decipher may be due in part to Paul's desire to show that he's familiar with what's being promoted at Colossae, which he does by crowding the text with terms that would be meaningful to his readers, but which are obscure to us. It may be, too, that he's using language designed to show up the whole cult as ridiculous and thereby shame his readers into the realization of the folly of being taken in by it. Now, the second thing mentioned is that someone is taking his stand on visions he has seen. The phrase taking his stand is a translation of the single Greek word, embatuo, which has several different meanings. It can mean to enter into or come into possession of something, or it can mean to investigate or go into the details of something, or it can mean to enter frequently. One Bible scholar lists several ancient inscriptions where the word is used of an initiate in the mystery cults who set foot in, and that's the same verb, and performed the initiation rites. Here Paul is quoting the very words used by these initiates who take their stand on these imagined revelations in the mysteries. Now to have visions, or to claim to see mystical things that no one else can see, is a purely private and subjective thing. As one commentator said, the vision is a mark of the esoteric character of the religion. Now, unfortunately, there's no way to verify the validity or the truth of what's being experienced or described by such a person. And far from being humble, Paul says that such a person is actually inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. One commentator states, Paul minces no words in showing how, contrary to the supposed self-abasement, this person really is puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The claim to having ecstatic visions would have been a powerful statement that attracted people's attention, if not their devotion, in the culture of Paul's day. He then goes on to explain why this set of issues is so dangerous to the church. In Colossians 2, verse 19, he says, And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, 
grows with a growth which is from God. Up to this point in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he has not given any clear indication that the dangers he warned against had actually crept into the churches of the Lycus Valley. But here in verse 19, we do see a sign that the person claiming spiritual visions is not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. To be accused of not holding fast to the head would imply that the person was part of the body, the church, and that he should be vitally connected to the head, who's Christ. As Paul stated in Colossians 1 verse 18, Christ is the head of the body, and it's from him that the entire body is supplied and held together so that it can grow in a healthy manner. So there may have been a church attender in Colossae who was advocating ecstatic visions as a way to become closer to God and to enhance one's spirituality. As we will see later, ecstatic experiences were a common practice in the region of Phrygia. But false humility, the worship of angels, and ecstatic visions have no benefit for enhancing the link that you already have to Christ. In fact, Paul states that these things indicate you have severed your link to Christ. You have lost touch with the head. He says that such a person is inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And inflated is the Greek word phusiao, which comes from the word for a bellows. It can mean to puff up something or to be inflated with pride and arrogance. So the appearance of humility or self-abasement is actually a cover for pride, arrogance, and a superior attitude. It's the fleshly mind that is the source for these things. A literal translation is, by the mind of his flesh. The human mind plus the sin nature is a dangerous combination. Together they can devise all sorts of ungodly things. What believers must rely on is the mind guided by the indwelling spirit and the truths of God's word. Apart from the spirit and the word, the fleshly mind is quite unreliable, even for a believer. In the next chapter of this letter, Paul will have much more to say about the right way to master the sin nature by means of a godly mindset. In Colossians 2 verse 20, Paul goes on to say, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? The third set of things have to do with severe treatment of the body, or what we might call asceticism. This is expressed by Paul in a single interrogatory sentence. Why do you submit to man-made decrees? But, as usual, Paul packs precious truths around this simple question. He begins by saying, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, 
As we mentioned in a previous session, there are several classes of conditional sentence in Greek. And here we have a first-class conditional clause, which means that we assume for the sake of argument that the condition is true. With this type of conditional clause, we might translate this verse, Since you have died with Christ. This takes us back to the picture of baptism, in which a believer identifies himself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. Everything else that Paul says here in verse 20 depends on the believer's death to the world and his new life in Christ. As one commentator expressed it, death with Christ, already considered in verse 12, is now set forth as that which separates one from the rudiments of the world. The redeemed are set free from man-made regulations, mistakenly concocted to make one more holy. So, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ for their eternal destiny have been freed from any obligation to obey these kinds of man-made decrees. Believers already have everything they could ever need in Christ. So, why would they seek something more? Believers already partake of the fullness through Christ. So what more could possibly be gained by following man-made regulations to abstain from certain things? The believer's cup is already full to overflowing, so there's nothing more of value that could possibly be added. The decrees or rules that were proposed had to do with abstaining from specific things. They were items that could be handled, tasted, and touched. There were many groups in the culture of Paul's day who taught that a person's spirituality or continued relationship with God depended on faithfully keeping outward rituals and avoiding specific consumables. We can use the word consumables here because that is what Paul calls these things in the very next verse. Colossians chapter 2 verse 22 says, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. The things that they were being told not to handle, taste, or touch are all things that perish with use. As one commentator expressed it, they're all destined for corruption, for physical decomposition in the very act of consumption. You cannot use them without using them up. They're destroyed at the very moment of being used. So the things that they're being asked to abstain from have no permanent existence and no significance in themselves. It's an interesting fact that what seem to be polar opposites, which are asceticism and hedonism, are actually two sides of the same coin. Asceticism encourages self-denial while hedonism values luxurious indulgence. But they both fall into the same error, as one commentator has said. Asceticism and luxury have in common an overestimate on the importance of material things. The one is the other turned inside out. The reveler in his purple and fine linen and the ascetic in his hair shirt 
Both make too much of what they shall put on. The one with his feasts and the other with his fasts both think too much of what they shall eat and drink. A man who lives on high with his Lord puts all these things in their right perspective. So as well as pertaining to things that are perishable, Paul says, These decrees or prohibitions are in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. As he said earlier in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, they are according to the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. In other words, they lack divine authority. These rules and regulations are not in accordance with God's word. Finally, in Colossians chapter 2 verse 23, Paul says, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So this verse is Paul's summary statement, and it provides the structure for the entire passage. As we mentioned earlier, he identifies three issues using these terms. First, self-made religion. Second, self-abasement. And third, severe treatment of the body. Earlier, Paul expressed his desire that no one delude you with persuasive argument in chapter 2, verse 4. And here in verse 23, he acknowledges that some of these matters have the appearance of wisdom. All of the things Paul has mentioned in this section at the end of chapter 2 may look promising from a human perspective, and they can appeal to our fleshly nature. Unfortunately, people find it much easier to submit to rigid external rules and regulations, but much more difficult to submit to the inner promptings and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But as we've already mentioned, none of these things provide any power for mastering the sin nature. One commentator expressed it this way, The milder forms of putting oneself to pain, hair shirts, scourgings, abstinence from pleasant things, with the notion that merit is thereby acquired or sin atoned for, have a deep root in human nature and hence a show of wisdom. It is strange that people should think that somehow or other they recommend themselves to God by making themselves uncomfortable. But so it is that religion presents itself to many minds mainly as a system of restrictions and injunctions which forbids the agreeable and commands the unpleasant. Now Paul's conclusion is that these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So we see that all of the things in today's passage covered the wrong ways to master the flesh. As one scholar has said, all these ordinances have no power to keep that sinful self down, and therefore they seem to Paul to be so much rubbish. Therein lies its conclusive condemnation. For if religious observances do not help a man to subdue his sinful self, what, in the name of common sense, is the use of them? There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the flesh, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. So, as we come to the end of Colossians chapter 2, 
Paul has led us to the point where we eagerly desire to know about the right way to master our fleshly desires. So Paul will begin the next chapter by answering our questions about the best way to deal with our sin nature by means of a godly mindset. Now, since we have a few minutes here at the end of this session, I'd like to take a short detour to talk about an issue that many of you probably have noticed in our study so far, the book of Colossians. If you have stayed with me so far in this study, you'll know that I tend to approach the text of the Bible using the traditional grammatical historical method of interpretation. This means that we study the words and the sentences of the text, as well as looking into the historical situation at the time of its writing, to discover the meaning of the text as the original author would have intended and as the original readers would have understood it. This is why I tend to spend quite a bit of time on word studies and sentence structure, as well as determining what an expression would have meant to the readers in the culture and society of that day. Simply put, we're trying to let the Word of God speak for itself. With the Apostle Paul's letters to the different churches, though, this can be a challenging task because what we have in the scriptures is only half of the conversation. It would be like eavesdropping on someone's telephone call and trying to reconstruct the entire message by listening only to one side of the conversation. There are parts of the conversation that we may need to guess or speculate about in order to make sense of what we're hearing. And in a way, that is what Bible scholars do when they interpret the epistles in the New Testament. They're trying to determine why Paul wrote what he did. What was the situation that caused Paul to word things the way he did? Was there an error that Paul was arguing against, but which he didn't specifically name? These are some of the questions that trustworthy Bible scholars are trying to answer. In order to accomplish this, they look at all the issues or symptoms that Paul recorded in the letter, and then they take those individual puzzle pieces and try to put them together to form a picture of the situation. In a way, it's like trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle without having the actual photo on the lid of the puzzle box to guide our placement of the pieces. Like when solving this kind of puzzle, the tendency is to try fitting all of the pieces into a single overall picture or a unified explanation of the situation. This is what reputable Bible scholars have been doing for several centuries. You may have noticed that almost every study Bible and commentary on the book of Colossians will have a section in which the author tries to identify what's often called the Colossian heresy. They're trying to put all the pieces together to create a single picture. The assumption is that there was a group of false teachers in the church at Colossae who were promoting a heresy about the nature and work of Christ, as well as making judgments about spirituality based on the kinds of behaviors that we've looked at today in this section of Colossians chapter 2. When Paul writes, don't do this or that, it's logical to assume that there were false teachers in the church who were actively leading believers into those errors. 
Many assume that when Paul emphasizes a particular doctrine, that he's doing it because he knows that that doctrine is being neglected by that church. Because Paul spent so much time describing the greatness of Christ and his work, the assumption is that the false teacher's system of theology was minimizing Christ's nature and work, or relegating Christ to a position of one of many other spiritual beings who influenced our world. Well, let's briefly take a look at the symptoms of the issue that Paul wrote about in his letter to the Colossians. There are some common themes that apply to all of them. They are characterized as empty deception, the traditions of men, and self-made religion. When we lay out the puzzle pieces, we can group them into roughly four basic categories. First, the worship of spirits. Second, asceticism. Third, observance of special days and rituals. And fourth, ecstatic inspirations or visions. One final category that I added is whether or not the error or the heresy was historically known to originate in Phrygia. On the right side of the chart, there are examples of some of the philosophical systems or religions that have been proposed by scholars as being part of the Colossian heresy. These items are listed based on the approximate time period during which they were known to appear and operate in history. First on the timeline is historic Judaism. But the only checkbox we can mark for traditional Judaism is the observance of special rites and festivals. As the Jewish Encyclopedia states, the history of both Judaism and the Jews is, on the whole, free from ascetic aberrations. When searching for a system that constitutes the Colossian heresy, we can eliminate historic Judaism from the list. Second on the timeline is the Greek mystery religions and philosophical systems. We see here that all of the checkboxes are marked under this category. The only reason for this, though, is that there were so many different schools over its long history that examples exist for all of the Colossian symptoms in some of the schools. But no one Greek mystery cult or school of philosophy can account for all of the checkboxes on its own. There was one specific mystery religion that originated in Phrygia, which was the cult of Sibylla around 200 BC. This may have had an influence in the tendency toward ecstatic visions, which we briefly mentioned previously. On the whole, though, there's no evidence that a single Greek philosophy or mystery religion is what constituted the so-called Colossian heresy. Third on the timeline is Jewish mysticism, which was practiced from around 100 BC. This is sometimes referred to as Merkabah mysticism from the Hebrew word which means chariot. It was a type of Jewish mysticism which included visions like those in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, or as described in the Hechalot or palaces literature. There was a fascination with stories of ascents to the heavenly palaces and viewing the throne of God, with an emphasis on ecstatic experience. This was an aberration in Jewish thought that was discouraged or prohibited by the rabbis. 
Since it only added the mystic element to Judaism, it's also not comprehensive enough to account for the Colossian heresy. The orange line in the chart indicates that this was the approximate time when Paul wrote to the Colossian believers. And we see that the existence of the Essenes does overlap that period. So fourth on the timeline is Essenism, which was also an outlier in Jewish thought. The history of the Essenes was short-lived, and they're best known for preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls in caves near their desert community. They were a splinter group who took the regulations of the Pharisees beyond their extreme. They practiced asceticism, celibacy, ritual baptism, communal living, strict observance of the Sabbath and holy days, studying and preserving the secrets of the elders, and a reverence for angelic beings. Even though the Essenes check many of the boxes, their system did not include all of the symptoms described by Paul, and they were never really known to have traveled or lived in the area of Phrygia. Fifth on the timeline is Montanism, which did not formally appear on the scene until almost a century after Paul was writing to the Colossians. I list it here because it was known as the Cataphrygian heresy since it originated in Phrygia. Montanus had been a priest in the cult of Sibylla, but he joined the church, and as a recent convert he claimed to have the gift of prophecy. He manifested ecstatic visions and spoke in unintelligible tongues similar to what he experienced as a pagan priest. Formal Montanism occurs too late in history and does not check all the boxes to account for what Paul described, but it does include several of the elements mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians, especially the regional tendency to mysticism. The last item on the timeline is Gnosticism, which did not appear on the scene until over a century after Paul wrote to the Colossians. It's included in the list here because most of the reliable commentaries and study Bibles discuss Gnosticism as forming at least part of the Colossian heresy. Gnosticism fostered exclusiveness by distinguishing an enlightened elite who were those with special knowledge, the Greek word gnosis. Their so-called knowledge was often gained through mystical or occult means, They believed that matter was evil, so a holy God could have no contact with the world. They taught that God put forth a series of intermediate spirit beings, each a little more distant from him, so that at the end of the chain there was one with enough deity to create the world of evil matter, but far enough removed from God so that his purity was not compromised. The Gnostics revered these intermediate spirit beings, and because they believed that matter was evil, they practiced asceticism and the severe treatment of the body. We can see that Gnosticism does check many of the boxes, but it occurs too late in history and does not include everything that Paul described in his Colossian letter. After reviewing about 200 years' worth of biblical scholarship, one theologian reported almost four dozen different opinions for the identity of the so-called Colossian heresy. 
He also concluded that the biblical writers were not fighting a known foe called Gnosticism. As we look at the various symptoms which Paul described in his letter, it's almost impossible for such diverse elements to hold together in a single system of worldly philosophy or religious heresy. Another Bible scholar provided a cogent warning to pastors and teachers who want to share a valid interpretation of Colossians. This scholar expressed it in these words, In attempting to reconstruct the situation behind Paul's writings, the danger of circularity is inevitable. It's all too easy to use what hints there are in a letter to build a false picture of events and then to read that picture back into the text. One must be cautious about constructing too much on the basis of Paul's warnings in chapter 2. Exhortation to avoid a certain course of action does not necessarily indicate that those addressed have already fallen prey to the temptation. It seems more likely that Paul is issuing a warning rather than an accusation. His language does not suggest that he regards them as in danger of apostasy. I've personally struggled with some of these challenges, and I certainly don't feel like I'm qualified to be dogmatic about this issue. I've decided to stick to the text of the Bible and to say what the text says about the situation in Colossae. I clearly understand that Paul sees a set of potential pitfalls that could derail the faith of this young church. The dangers are real, and the Holy Spirit led Paul to warn the Colossians and us against turning away from the truths of God's word. One alternative we have as we attempt to put together all of the pieces of this puzzle is that the puzzle pieces may not be from a single picture. It could be that there were several trends in the culture of that day which Paul was led to warn believers about. It's possible that their attackers may be coming at them from several directions, so they need to be aware of potential dangers from several sources. Regardless of whether there was a single Colossian heresy, the truths that Paul has shared so far, as well as the important things he will share in the upcoming sections, should keep us focused on carefully studying the words of the biblical text using the traditional grammatical historical method of interpretation to draw out accurate meanings and applications from the book of Colossians. By way of application, are there activities in our spiritual life or our church life which we participate in because we think those things are required in order to maintain our relationship with Christ? These may involve matters of food or drink, or special days, or rituals, or harsh treatment of the body, or even fear of demonic influence, or other traditions of men. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your eternal destiny, then there's nothing that can separate you from him. God cannot love you any more than he already does right now. Don't allow yourself to be in bondage to man-made rituals that hinder rather than help your connection to Christ. On the other side of the coin, are you standing in judgment over other believers because they're observing or failing to observe certain things that you think are important? 
Are your expectations really that important? Are they essential things or are they non-essentials of the faith? Let's exercise more grace as we deal with each other in the family of God.